0: Hebrews 11 is uh, the great chapter of the epistle that deals with faith, the subject of faith. And it highlights in its opening verses uh, the efforts of men and women and children to attempt to please God without faith. And this effort began, John Owen points out, with Cain, who after putting himself first, sought to please or find acceptance with God not by faith, but by his ingenuity. And ever since, men, women, and children have attempted the same thing, to try and please or find acceptance with God by their own ingenuity rather than by faith. I've shared with you before uh, my experience in geometry class I struggled because as a drafting student, I could often solve the problems without doing the math. And that was exasperating to my classmates and my teacher because I could easily scribe an arc through whatever points are required. I could form an angle or a part of an angle and spot where any intersecting line was supposed to be. It was just uh, it just came naturally to me from my drafting training. The problem would require one to begin by solving for X so that you could find the point on the angle and then scribe an arc through it. And I'd look at the drawing and I'd look at the question as the problem was set out and I'd use my drafting experience and tools and say, well, it's right there. I didn't have to solve for X. I knew where X is, it's right there. And uh, obviously that wasn't what dear Mrs. Higginbotham wanted me to hear, or she wanted to hear, or see for that matter. And I struggled through the class doing a lot of what I deemed unnecessary math and uh, passed on the back of extra credit earned from helping the artistically challenged make their drawings correct. Because even after they did the math, they couldn't figure out how to draw the picture that they were supposed to draw. Now, I realize that uh, my whole thinking in this matter at that point in life was uh, not only convoluted, but it was out of step with the whole purpose and design instruction of the class. And I was ignoring the prescribed process, applying my own ingenuity, and not really learning what was intended or required to my own detriment. So, If you're a student, you're thinking, well, Pastor Fisher did that. Don't do that. It's been to my own detriment that I did that. Now, I did survive all this because geometry, as important as it is and, and, and essential as it is to a good education, is not a matter of life and death. But finding acceptance with God is exactly that. It is a matter of life and death. And our text here for this morning is probably one of the most famous verses from the book of Hebrews. It's Hebrews chapter 11 and the sixth verse. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, this verse follows in order the message that Mr. Brillhart will actually be presenting next week on Enoch. But though it follows that example in the text, there are certain advantages of dealing with it first before considering the example of Enoch. There's advantages in this situation to putting the cart before the horse. And toward that end, I'll be dealing with the doctrine taught here. And I'm not going to be referring to the practical example set before you of Enoch. I'm going to leave that to Mr. Brohart next week. Now, some Bible commentators see the opening phrase here as a golden maxim, they call it. Without faith, it is impossible to please or find acceptance with God. And they kind of hold that up as sort of a, a golden rule from the scriptures. What we're talking about here is not a generic faith. That's not what is implied here by what uh, the author says. By that that I mean it's not saying that you just have to believe something. Uh, You just have to believe something sincerely. Uh, Anything will do in order to please God. What it implies is that one must possess the faith that God describes and gives and gives in his word in order to please him, so if you believe in rainbows and and uh, um, butterflies and and unicorns, that's not faith that's not what's being spoken of here. if you believe in some other god or goddesses or The force uh, being with you, or anything like that, that's not what's being referred to. It's not saying just any kind of faith. Consequently, when someone says, I believe in God, but then denies something that God says about himself, or something that he says about mankind, or salvation, or if they add something to it, he or she is employing his or her own ingenuity and not exercising the faith that God requires of those who will find acceptance with him. So here we are this morning, a body of believers gathered together here in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And hopefully each of you believes that you have found acceptance with God by that faith which God calls for. If any of you are putting your hopes in your own ingenuity, or your feelings, or your dreams, then please listen carefully to this maxim. Because without the exercise of faith as defined by God himself, you can't find acceptance with God. No matter how sincere you are. No matter how earnestly you may want it, if you're doing it or seeking it in some way other than the way God prescribes, you cannot find it. That's simply stated in the first part of what we have here. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Now, A.W. Pink says here, most solemnly do these words attest the total depravity of man. So corrupt is the fallen creature, both in soul and body, in every power and part thereof. And so polluted is everything that issues from him, that he cannot of and by himself do anything that is acceptable to the Holy One. That's a profound statement, but that's what God says. The truth taught here, beloved, is that apart from the exercise of redeeming faith... One cannot please God. Set faith in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ aside, as many do, and try to substitute anything you can imagine, and you will fail. Because it's impossible to please him without the faith that he has prescribed. Faith is the one key that unlocks the door to God's presence and God's acceptance for anyone, in any age, at any time. And the reason that this is so is because nothing else, beloved, has the potency or the ability to gain acceptance with him or to please him. By the term impossible, it is implied that everything else is too weak to accomplish the task. It's impossible for anything else you can think of to gain for you acceptance with God because it is not strong enough, it is not powerful enough, it's not efficient enough to establish that acceptance. Some people believe that they can bully their way into God's favor. Others think that they can endear themselves to God by their works and by their devotion. Some think sincerity will do it others, great self-sacrifice. Some try to buy it. Some try to trade for it. And still others try to finagle acceptance with God. You know what I mean by finagle acceptance with God? Um, That's, uh, Lord, if I do this for you, then you'll do this for me, right? And you'll accept me because I do this for you. And they try to make a deal in that sense almost uh, at times trying to fool him into accepting them. But all along, the one they're trying to please says through the witness of his only begotten son, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And those who are seeking some other way are saying, except for me, I'm, I'm the exception to the rule. No one can come to the Father but by you except for me. I've got another way that I have, by my own ingenuity, invented. I think you can see just on the surface how empty that is. All those others, beloved, are just too impotent for the task, too weak. How can an omnipotent God be bullied into anything? If you're the strongest one in the room and the most powerful one in the room, how can anybody bully you into anything? Can't happen. How can sinners possibly endear themselves by their works when all their righteousnesses are like a defiled rag? No, this desire to please God and find acceptance with Him by our own works is the foundation of all superstition in worship you set up one duty in 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 the place of faith and you're bound you're almost obligated to set up another one a better one and pretty soon you've got dozens you know i did this work and and that was good and someone comes along and says oh yeah well i'm going to do this work and i'm going to be even better than you are and god's going to accept me and then another one builds on top of that and another one on top of that And if you dare to suggest that these efforts have no value with God toward the saving of the soul, those striving by them, they become like Cain, depressed and angry and even violent at times. How dare you suggest that I am not good enough to be in heaven when I do all these good things? How dare you suggest that? What kind of cruel person are you to suggest that I cannot, by all these good things I've done, please God and find my place in heaven? The Reformation message that salvation was by grace and faith alone, what did it cause many to do? To gather sticks and wood to ignite the fires of martyrdom. Because being burned to death, was the only fit end for those who dared to suggest that no one was ever saved by his or her works. Because they believed the word of God. Because they believed what Paul said when in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 he said, By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. So that no one may boast. How can those who will use God's name in vain at the drop of a hat, when He says He will not hold them guiltless who do so, possibly hope to gain favor by their sincerity? And how can the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the gold in every mine be bribed and bought? Into appeasement. And how can an all wise and omniscient God ever be finagled into anything? In Isaiah 66, beginning in verse 1, it says, Thus says the Lord Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb, like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering, like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense, like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. They have practiced their ingenuity in the worship of God. And how does God respond to their works and their offerings? He says, it's nothing to me. It's an insult to me. And above all of this, beloved, how can the one true and living God who sent his only begotten Son into the world to die for sinners accept anything less for the redemption of a soul and acceptance without doing irreparable harm to the honor of his Son and to his own word? Having sent his Son to die for us can he then say, oh, and you gave to the red cross? Okay, that's, those are equal. What does that do to the sacrifice of the son? What does that do to the honor of his own word where he says there's no other way? When you say, no, no, I can do it this way. Where God, beloved, declares a thing impossible, it's sheer folly to attempt it. And that's what this verse teaches you. It is impossible to find peace with God without faith, without faith in Jesus Christ. As John Owen says, Let men desire and aim at it as long as they please. They will never attain to it, for it is impossible. Faith being the first regular motion of the soul towards God. No, beloved, as Acts 4.12 tells us, there is, no, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. In Galatians 3.26, Paul says, For in Christ Jesus you are all the sons of God through faith. There's no other means, there's no other way, there's no other route, there's no other kind of belief, there's no other thing that you can come up with. It's your ingenuity that will bring you acceptance with him. But what does it mean to please God or or find acceptance with him? And this is a term that is in precise form, only found in this precise form, only found here in the book of Hebrews. It's found in verse 5, referring to Enoch, and it's found in chapter 13, in verses 15 through 16. Through him then, that is through the Lord Jesus Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. That's the only other place that this verse is used besides in reference to Enoch. It has the idea of one being fully satisfied Or satisfying and therefore acceptable, even pleasing. So the only way we can appear satisfactory in the eyes of God is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we stand in Him, when we come to Him in Christ, then we appear satisfactory before Him, then we are acceptable, and it is pleasing to Him. There's an intrinsic quality here in this acceptance that's hard to put into words. But when the Lord God sees men, women, and children coming to him on no other ground than that which his holiness demands, which his beloved son has provided in accord with his word and will, it is wonderfully and and glorifyingly precious to him. And with that approach, he is well pleased. When we come and nothing else, bearing no works, no, no attempts at self-satisfaction uh, in the eyes of God or self-justification, we come just in Christ and our faith in him and the power of his redeeming blood. When we approach him in that way, according to his word, it is wonderfully and, and beautifully glorifying to him as God. And with that approach, he's well pleased. In 1 Peter 3, verse 18, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You see how the emphasis there emphasis there is on Christ. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous one for the unrighteous, that he might bring the unrighteous to God. In Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 19, Paul writes this. For in him that is the Lord Jesus Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself, that is God to himself, through Christ, all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alien and hostile in your mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And can you see the foolishness in saying, well, on the one hand, God has said, here is the soul cleansed by the blood of the cross. And made holy and blameless by the blood of the cross. Oh, and over here, someone else, and they've chosen a different way to come into my presence. And they've done it by burning incense to an idol. Or by some good works that they have undertaken. So some get in by the blood and are made holy and blameless and, and, and unreproachable. But others have done it through a little less arduous course not through the blood of Christ, but through their own good works or good intentions or sincerity. There's no comparison between the two. The Father has conveyed to you and me the precious spirit of this in the parable of the prodigal son, where he casts himself in the character of the loving Father, Receiving home his wayward and lost son. And he says that when we come to him in Christ, this is the picture that you can have in mind. We read that the prodigal rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. that spirit of joyful reception of a lost son, we're told is the picture of the Father receiving you and me when we come to him by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at how this faith is described here in our text, where it has two qualities or aspects. Those who would draw near in worship, seeking acceptance, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So the first thing required is that one coming to God must believe that he is or that he exists. Now, that may sound very simplistic on the surface. But if you take time to think about it and roll it around in your mind, it becomes a rather deep matter. To begin with, If there is no God, then all religion and all worship is just a silly mockery. It's folly to seek after one who, because he doesn't exist, doesn't care whether he's sought out or not. It's it's silly to do that. But the evidence that God exists, beloved, is everywhere. And the scripture speaks for itself in this matter. In Psalm 19, and it's a beautiful psalm, many people have memorized it. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has sent a tent, set a tent for the sun. Which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, In keeping them there is great reward. The evidence of the existence of God can be found both in the witness of the creation... Day unto day makes that testimony, and in the testimony of his word. As Paul puts it in Romans 1 and verse 17 For in it the righteousness of God, that is in the gospel, is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. So the Lord's existence is evident from the witness of the creation and from the witness of the word. But there is a third witness. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ in you. You are one of his witnesses. The creation bears witness. The word bears witness. You who are in Christ Jesus bear witness. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that anyone should boast. And all that we read earlier. But the next verse says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. But let it be understood, the difference between believing that there is a God, or a force, or some sort of divine power, and what is required here is this. This sort of believing that he is involves a surrendered belief that he is all that he says he is and all that is necessary to be God indeed. So when we talk about believing that he is, it's believing that he is all that he declares himself to be and all that is necessary for him to be to be God. Many seek a God who is anything but divine and who is therefore no God at all. If that's you in some way, give it up. Give it up. If you're seeking anything, seeking a God who is anything less than God, I would say to you, why waste the time and energy? If you're seeking a God who is less than God, less than the God who's presented to us here in this word, why bother? Why do it? Why waste the time? Why pursue a God who doesn't love you enough to save you by his own sacrifice? Why go seeking a God who doesn't have the wisdom, the goodness, or the power to really help you? One who doesn't pity you as a father pities his children. Who doesn't pledge to keep you as the apple of his eye. Why worship that God? You see, beloved, the God who demands your devotion here by faith is a God who is wholly worthy of that devotion. David said in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 22, Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. We go through this word and we see all these things declared to us about the God we love and we worship. We see things about the character of his love. We see things about the the omniscient power that he possesses. We read about his sovereignty. We read about uh, um, his care for his people we read about the power of his creation and we see all these things about god and they declare him to be god and god alone and there's no one else and nothing else like him and that's why we desire to come into his presence and that's why we fall on his son for the forgiveness of sins so that we can come into the presence of one who is like the description we have here Jeremiah adds this in Jeremiah 10, 6-7. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great and might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. So, first, by faith we must believe that He is. Not some pale image of what he declares himself to be, but everything he declares himself to be. Everything the creation gives evidence of concerning him. And the second aspect of this faith is that you believe that he rewards those who seek him. In other words, one must believe that if they honestly and fully seek him out, He will be found, and he will be found to be all that he promises to be and nothing less. Now, both the new King James and the King James add the word diligently to seek him, which the uh, ESV translators opted to leave out, somewhat weakening the force of the word in my mind. The Greek word is a compound one that conveys the idea of seeking something out. But it implies not just a cursory search, but an honest and a thorough one. One of my children, I'm not going to tell you which one, but she doesn't live in this country. In fact, she lives in Europe. Uh, Would always lose a shoe on Sunday morning. And the command to go look for it, and let me just say to you parents who are thinking, oh, that'll never happen to me because I always make sure, don't don't count on that. We'd always put them out right at the end of the bed Saturday night so they would be right there. Come Sunday morning, couldn't find them. So the command then to go look for that shoe uh, was not always interpreted as an instruction to search for it honestly and thoroughly by that child of mine. It usually required an exasperated and earnest parent who was willing to turn things over, to crawl under beds, search through toy chests, and keep at it until the missing shoe was discovered to actually find it. That's the kind of seeking in a very pale picture that is described here. It's not the the picture that the daughter gave when She was told to go look for it and came back two minutes later and said, I still can't find it. And then, you know, we had to go look for it. If it is believed that God exists as God in all holiness and righteousness, power and glory, then an earnest seeking is going to be undertaken in humility and surrender to him with a willingness to be obedient to his word. He'll be sought according to the path that he's described by which he may be found. There won't be any of this, well, God, I'd like to find a place in your sight. And I know this is your prescription, and I know you're mighty and you're powerful and you're God. But I think I've come up with a better plan. I think I have a better idea of how to approach you than the one that you've prescribed. If you really believe that he is mighty and powerful and he is the God he declares himself to be, you're never going to do that. You're going to come in earnestness and humility and sincerity. And all who do have this promise that's given to us in Jeremiah twenty-nine, thirteen: You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. In Psalm 119, verse 2, David says, Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. I'm paraphrasing A.W. Pink here, and he says that there are four things necessary to pleasing God. First, the person must be accepted by him. Or he could never be pleased by the one who is trying to come to him. And there is no way, according to God's word, that we can find acceptance outside of Jesus Christ. Secondly, whatever is done has to be done in perfect accord with his will and his word. And thirdly, it must be done in perfect uh, perfectly with all humility, sincerity, and cheerfulness. And lastly, it must be done for one great purpose, the glory of God alone. Is any of that possible outside of Jesus Christ, beloved? Are any of you equipped to do that in your own strength and initiative? Do you have some ingenuity that will get you lined up to do that without Christ? God has declared that there is no other way to come to him but by Christ. And now you and I come together to Christ's table and we confess together that we believe that God is. That God is everything he declares himself to be in his word. He is God. God as he sets himself forth in the creation, in his word, and testifies of himself among his people. And we confess that we believe that God is, and that he is the one who rewards with redemption, adoption, sanctification, and everlasting life, those who diligently seek him through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We come to celebrate that all those things are ours because we believe that this God that we're worshiping through Christ is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In John chapter 6, Jesus said in verse 37, Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come now in the blessed name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Testifying, Lord, that we believe that you are. And Lord, that you are the one who rewards those who seek you. And because we have come to you in the name and in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and not in our own name or our own works, we have been rewarded with redemption and and salvation with sanctification, with adoption, and Lord, uh, with everlasting life. These things are ours through Christ, through his sacrifice for us on the cross of Calvary. Lord, we pray that we may come in that faith, rejoicing that these things are ours, rejoicing that you are ours as the living God, and rejoicing that we had a redeemer who loved us and loved us to the end. We want no other God, Lord, than you, the one who redeemed us and saved us out of love. Receive us in Christ's name, for it's in his name we pray and give thanks. Amen.